Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In 1830, the U.S. Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, aimed to relocate Indian tribes in the southeastern United States to undetermined land across the Mississippi River in the Oklahoma Territory. The tribes affected were the Choctaw, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Creek, the so-called 4C tribes, and the Seminole of Florida. The Army and Indian agents forcibly evicted thousands among the 4C tribes. The tragic tale of this unjust trail of tears rips at our collective hearts to this day. When removal efforts came to the Seminole of Florida, however, some departed voluntarily, but the majority stood their ground and refused to be moved. With us today to discuss why they resisted removal is Dr. Joe Kanesh. Joe is the author of a number of books and journal articles on the Seminole Wars. His anthology, Fear and Anxiety on the Florida Frontier, Articles on the Second Seminole War, 1835 to 1842, informs our discussion today. Dr. Joe Kanesh, Welcome to the Seminole Wars. First up, tell us about your book, The Fear and Anxiety on the Florida Frontier. It's a collection of articles you'd written over many years. Uh, why compile them all into one volume, and what are the themes? Well, the reason for compiling them all in one volume uh, and using a Jackson Walker cover, which always makes everything attractive, is the fact that most of my publications were published in a lot of the local uh, historical journals, uh, like the at home out of Citrus County and those kind of things. Uh, and many of the quote unquote scholars, uh, yourself and others accepted, uh, don't look in those local places. So to put it all in a convenient form for people to use and, that, and be able to cite it more accurately, uh, we put, decided to put it into uh, one form. And that's how we got it through the Seminole Wars Foundation, who were gracious enough to publish it. In the table of contents, you've broken it up into a couple themes. Yeah, we, we tried to make it uh, somewhat easier to handle for people who were uh, looking at the beginning of the war or what was going on during the war, how it impacted uh, individuals. Um, probably one of the finest uh, diaries I've ever read, uh, just for the gossip of nothing else, and he makes most women look uh, very tame when it comes to gossip, is the Samuel Heinzelman stuff that we got when he was the uh, quartermaster here in Tallahassee. Uh, it is, uh, shall we say, delicious when it comes to you know, good gossip of the day. And he talked about a lot of people that I know uh, from my research at, at the Bureau of Survey and Mapping, uh, Division of State Lands at DEP, um, who were the surveyors, uh, people like uh, A.M. Randolph, Arthur Murray Randolph, who is indeed one of the Randolphs of Virginia, by the way. Uh, he also talked about Henry Washington, who BLM considered one of the finest surveyors in BLM history. Uh, gives you an idea that the, this, is a, this is a pretty classy place. Uh, there's always the uh, raucous frontier, of course, but uh, Tallahassee have a lot more class to it than most people want to give it credit for. It, just because it doesn't have it today doesn't mean it didn't have it then. So fear and anxiety on the Florida frontier, I mean, it talks about the Second Seminole War. And I mentioned about um, Indian removal. So why did the Seminole resist removal? Well, there are a couple of very good reasons. First of all, this was their homeland. Uh, they had been here off and on. Uh, I think Patsy West has done a lot of research on this. They go back to at least the middle 1700s. 
they were not just recent immigrants to Florida. They had been here off and on for a lot of years. Uh, one of the major reasons they fought was because it was very obvious that the United States government was going to put them under the creeks out west. And, of course, they'd been fighting for about 200 years for independence from the Creek Confederation, uh, or whatever domination you want to call it, uh, whether it was confederation or what, uh, sometimes up to some kind of question. Um, but uh, they were not going to put themselves under Creek leadership in any, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, later on in the war, when uh, Cloud and McAnulty and Jumper and a few others were discussing it, were going out to the west with uh, Jessup, uh, they insisted uh, that they must take their uh, blacks with them, uh, which uh, has you know, created some recent controversy, as we all know, out in Oklahoma, because they want to deny the, the blacks the uh, right to have any uh, funds from the federal government uh, as far as things are going there. Uh, we, I like to point out the fact that they insisted that the blacks go with them uh, out to Oklahoma, and Jessup agreed. He was just anxious to get the war over and get out of here, uh, and we all understand the reason for that. But uh, you know, it's, it was a brutal war, uh, as we all know, and that's one of the reasons and the fascinations for this, because it was the longest, most uh, continuous Indian War in American history, and also the most costly, and men lost, and, and that's just federal soldiers, I might add, uh, and uh, money spent, around $30 million, which I hate to even look at what it translates to today, but it'd be pretty close to a billion. Uh, it was an extraordinarily expensive uh, endeavor to try to remove the Seminoles, and they never did totally succeed, knock on wood. Right. How has the Seminole resistance differed from any other uh, resistance by the so-called 4C tribes? I think it's actually better led. Uh, that's one of the key factors right there. The leadership of the Seminole uh, warrior group, uh, let, let's put it that way. I, I don't use the word chiefs. Um, the reason being that they, you know, they all take things in the, uh, the headmen of the local village. Now, you know, you, you know the uh, situation as far as it's all done through tribal council. There is no quote-unquote chief uh, in what uh, white man's terms are. Um, and I like to leave it at that because I'm not a Seminole or Miccosukee, and therefore you know, I'm not uh, privy to the interiors of what goes on today or through the oral history that they've received uh, from little children on. I am on the Governor Council, Governor Councils for Indian Affairs. doesn't make me an expert on Indian culture, uh, even though I worked with the, the, the Miccosukees and uh, lived with the Seminoles for years in South Florida. I lived in that area. I was three blocks from the res down there. Um, it's one It's one of those situations where they uh, constantly had to fight for their existence. Uh, they, they constantly had to establish things uh, that, including a new government, if you will, uh, and constantly be, being forced out of where they were. It's going to cause resistance every single time. Well, I think a lot of their resistance, of course, was the fact that, A, they were already set, and they did have uh, in front of them, if you will, uh, and the, the network amongst the Native Americans is, is pretty good for the most part. They understood that, well, there was, those treaties were made and that people like John Ross and others had made, you know, committed the Cherokees to uh, their destiny. Uh, the Seminoles saw that. They probably knew what was going on in the early, early years of the Trail of Tears, which preceded the Seminole War directly in, in most cases. And they saw that this, you know, this is not what we want to do. This is not, it's not going to be for us. And, of course, uh, we all know that you know, when they sent the, uh, the Treaty of Payne's Landing, they sent some Indians, uh, some of the Indians out west, 
uh, and they came back. The report the government put out was, oh, they accepted it and they wondered. That's not the tradition that we hear from the Seminole and Miccosukee tribes, that the, these people were basically forced, browbeaten, or beaten uh, into, you're going to accept this no matter what. And don't forget, you know, it's the American government who determined who's going to be negotiated with. That was not done with, notice none of these treaties were ever submitted to tribal council. Never. And tribal councils were all decisions in the Seminole Miccosukee, and the Creek tribes too, for that matter, uh, and southeastern tribes. The tribal councils where the power is. Uh, and those, those are the ones who made the decision. The American government just totally ignored it. And if they're appointee, like a John Hicks or some of the more viable uh, people, uh, Charlie Anathla, uh, look what happened to Charlie. Uh, I think that tells you everything you wanted to know about what the, uh, at least the warrior group, uh, those who wanted to, those who wanted to resist uh, and thought that was the only real realistic approach. Uh, look what happened to Charlie Moffel. They made sure that uh, his his gold pieces didn't go any further. I was reading that his brother then took out a, a number of seminal with him, and they had a horrible time. They lost many from disease and from exposure and so forth and getting out to Oklahoma, uh, which was another way of pointing out why. Removal was not a real good thing for them. Absolutely. You're totally right. Um, <laughs> and believe me, the word got back. Uh, it's an amazing, uh, like I said, the amazing intelligence system, if you want to use it, that use that phrase, uh, was very, very remarkable amongst the Seminoles. The drive for, for uh, land, uh, cattle, land, etc., by the wiregrass whites, uh, it was, was just insatiable, no matter what. And the Seminoles and Miccosukees in Florida stood in their way. They weren't going to put up with that. I mean, this displacement of those who were opposed to any further settlement by whites was uh, not going to be tolerated under any circumstance. And Seminoles knew this. They were well aware of this. That was really one of the reasons, uh, going back to the days of Thompson, uh, and what his, you know, was all about. The same for, you could go back to the 1760s and Pontiac's Rebellion. You know, the same kind of issues were coming up. The Indians do very well. This was not going to be a good thing. And if you resist, you may lose your life and you may lose your land. By God, you're not going to be removed uh, from your homeland and from the graves of your father. Yeah, it looked like with the four sea tribes, um, the U.S. government was successful in divide and conquer. They got a number of folks to move. And then uh, those who were remaining were not in, a, in the, you know, the mass force that they could actually say, here, we're going to stand and fight. Um, whereas with the Seminole, only a few had moved, and uh, they still had the bulk of, uh, of tribes and communities and so forth who could resist. You've written that the resistance led to open warfare, but that in the long history of the U.S. Army, the Second Seminole War was different from any other war U.S. troops fought. Why do you say this? You know, U.S. troops and U.S. Army and the federal government, uh, generally speaking, you know, they pretty much bullied their way through uh, the fights on the other civilized tribes of the southeast uh, and other places. It wasn't just them. Uh, they pretty much had gotten their way. They come to the Seminoles and all of a sudden, boom, they're now into a fierce war that they were not planning for. Remember that when, uh, when Dade's command was attacked and uh, Constantine Smith and, and uh, Wiley Thompson were uh, killed in, at, at Ocala at Fort King, there were only 500 federal, in round numbers, 500 federal troops in the entire state were territory at that particular time. I mean, that's yeah, obviously they were not preparing for any kind of war uh, on any extent. I mean, and that was not because they had not been warned. Uh, 
and had not been, you know, even Clinch himself had asked for more troops, saying this is not going to be easy. And uh, others uh, kind of kind of poo-pooed it. And, uh, and of course, you have Jackson in, in power, who's been able to divide and conquer better than anyone uh, in American history, at least. Uh, and he was very successful in removing the Indians. He did not ever expect uh, to have the problem with the Seminoles that, uh, that he wound up having, really uh, blackening the uh, record, uh, shall we say, of the Jackson administration in any way, shape, or form. He never expected the Seminoles to do as well as they did. That's, that's a key factor in uh, the history of our country and the history of the American army. They were just not prepared. Uh, about 35 or 40 percent of the United States Army were foreign-born. Some of them didn't even speak English yet, let alone know how to fire a gun. Uh, and, you know, the training at that particular time was not sophisticated, uh, not well-organized. Uh, it was usually left up to the sergeants uh, and corporals uh, in the group they were assigned to. They were given a uniform before they were given a gun. Uh, and then they sent to their new post, and uh, it was supposed to be the non-commissioned officers who taught them how to fire, etc. God forbid you should have an officer actually go down and, you know, teach anybody that anything. <laughs> you know, they weren't capable because we're, we're military people. Um, many of them were, as you know, West Point grads at that point in time. The first real war were West Point officers uh, predominated in the officer class. And they were not prepared uh, by training and or education to do this kind of war. We had seven generals overall uh, in charge. Well, I think Worth was a colonel when he was given the command finally, but became a general. Uh, none of them were all that successful, Worth being probably the most successful because, well, frankly, it's the end of the war. Uh, Seminoles are beaten down. They've lost nearly 4,000 uh, people being emigrated or killed. Uh, we, we think that's the number. The n you can't really play a numbers game here uh, because they're just... Uh, what statistics are you going by and where would you get them? Uh, you know, that's, that's always amazed me that they say, well, there were 5,000 Indians in Florida. Really? That's that all you think? <laughs> yeah. You had people that, you had a fluid border, uh, you know, from Alabama to through Georgia. It was a very porous thing. So you had creeks yeah, and remnants of the Amasies. It's like you had all sorts of people, uh, Native Americans. Uh, going through the borders and, and joining up with the Seminole. Uh, of course, the, the number of escaped slaves who joined in. Uh, and, of course, the, the blacks who were already here. Uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing uh, amalgamation of people who were fighting the American government. It wasn't just the Seminoles and Mikasukis. Uh Others uh, were involved in that. And if they, you know, the enemy, my enemy is my friend uh, attitude, uh, you would, you'll have a lot of people joining in. That's one of the reasons why some of the Red Stick faction from the, the Creek War, the Creek Civil Wars up there in Alabama, that's why they joined in the Florida quite readily, Neomothla being a great example of that. Joe, you talked a little bit then, uh, of course, about that this was not the war the Army wanted against this opponent or for as long as it was. And then you mentioned how unprepared the Army was. And yet, General Scott went north and fought the Creeks and brought them to heel in a relative short period of time. Why was he more successful there than in Florida? Or rather, why was he such a failure in Florida as, compo as compared, rather, to how he did up in Georgia? Well, Winfield Scott wasn't very successful in Florida, and the Alabama campaign was conducted by Jessup before Scott even got there. Yeah, it kind of tipped off Scott, needless to say. Jessup had to almost apologize for being the victor in Alabama. 
uh, it's it kind of an interesting uh, correspondence between the two men who uh, had been friends and Scott got a little jealous when his underling uh, went over and was successful so quickly uh, against the remnants of the breadsticks, really, is what that amounted to. But you know, take a look at uh, Scott's uh, campaign in Florida. It is a brilliantly planned assault, a three-pronged plan. The problem with that, and, and you know this as well as anybody, because of your military training uh, and career, you know that there was the logistics of that was impossible. Uh, he comes down here with a band, uh, his entire camping equipment, uh, complete with China, um, you know, coming along uh, and is going to um, be leading a, one group out of the Fort Greene area, and then you got uh, Lindsay coming up from Tampa, and got Abraham Eustace uh, coming along into an area that was totally unmapped by any white man. And you know, the fact that Eustace even made it across the Okalaha River is an amazement, frankly, when you considered what kind of territory he had to go through with absolutely no mapping of the state of Florida or the territory of Florida. Uh, we had, as, as I think Jessup put, a, put it in one of his letters home or back to the commanding officers, I said, we know less about the interior of Florida than we do the interior of Africa. David Livingston never found <laughs> was ever found by Andrew Stanley. And in contrast, they had mapped Alabama and Georgia. They were they were used to they were used to that terrain. And as you said, it was remnants of the Red Sticks. These folks had already been divided, and then they were easier to conquer going up there um, for these various reasons that you noted. Whereas in Florida, you know, it was like going into dark Africa. They didn't know what the terrain was, and they weren't really prepared. And the Seminoles were united and not divided in in whom they were fighting. Exactly. Uh, and the, the Seminoles and Mekaseki worked really hard, well together. I think the only the only time where they agreed uh, on one um, main spiritual leader in Sam Jones or Abiyaka. Uh, either, either way, uh, he's the only one back in uh, thirty. I think it was thirty late thirty six, early thirty seven. They basically agreed that he would be the kind of the spiritual head and you know the for one one of a better phrase the medicine carrier. Uh, for the combined groups, that's the only time it's ever happened in their history. And um, I'm, I'm waiting anxiously for the day the biography of Sam Jones comes out. Uh, and Patsy's been working on it for a lot of years uh, and really trying to tie all the uh, very loose ends at, time, at some times together. Uh, he's an amazing character and an amazing uh, feature on the frontier that is totally underrated because uh, you never see it in a... They talk about the, uh, the great leaders. They talk about Osceola. Osceola is out of it by 37. Who's, who's going to carry it on for the next five years? And then, then that gives you an idea of the depth of the leadership and the abilities of the leadership. Uh, people like Alligator, uh, Jumper uh, in his time. There was uh, Philip, King Philip was another one. Uh, very brilliant. And, of course, we can't forget Kawakuchi uh, or Wildcat. An amazing uh, men who understood the nature of guerrilla warfare, as we now call it, um, or asymmetrical warfare, whatever you wish, uh, they were br they were brilliant at it. The Americans had never, ever faced anyone so good as the Seminole leadership at that time. They had great leadership, and they were prepared for the war. How did they prepare for the war? Well, primarily doing the planting on the various islands in the Cove of the Wetlacoochee. Uh, again, that's another place where once the Army finally did get in there, it wasn't until the 1840-41 campaigns that they did, uh, they found amazing growth of food, etc. 
Uh, remember the story in that Sprague talks about uh, when he was interviewing Tiger Tail, uh, or mentions uh, talks about Tiger Tail's. He told him, or it was an indirect story, but Tiger Tail. In 1841, they go to the Homosassa River. Hoffman's 6th Infantry uh, comes through there, and they destroy all those crops that he had been planting for years in that area. It had not been touched uh, by the Army until that invasion uh, on the Homosassa. Uh, and he's looking down, he's hiding in the tall uh, water oak, or Chinese, whatever oak kind of tree you talk about. Uh, well, I would say probably a water oak at that time. But he's way up in the tree. He's obviously well uh, concealed, and the army wasn't looking that high up, probably. Uh, and he's seeing his crops destroyed. He knew right then and there that the fights went over. And, and two months later, uh, whatever they carried out of encampment fleeing the army was all they had. And once that was gone, he had to surrender. I mean, it kind of tells you they knew they had stashes and caches, if you will, of uh, materials weapons, uh, lead especially, uh, and things like that they had taken from the various plantations, particularly on the East Coast, uh, and put them in places that they would have down the line. It's, you know, it's amazing how well uh, they were able to constantly do that. Now, as, as you know, later on, they, they run short of things like lead and powder uh, and tried to trade with them. Uh, that was one of the things that angered Jessup the most. They would come in to places like Fort Mellon, uh, presumably to negotiate, uh, trade with the local trader or whatever, which they allowed them to do, which you kind of scratch your head on that one, too. Uh, and they walk out of there with more lead and powder and a few other things, and next thing you know, they're back at war because they're just replenishing their supplies. And Jessup saw through that, and that's what angered him most. He says, here I am allowing negotiating with them, and he turns right around and, and uses the same stuff we, we traded with him to kill my men. As any commanding officer would do, they would probably, he would go, he went after them. And did he finally violate uh, some of the rules of war? Yeah, you put up a white flag and they, they all come together and capture them. That's a violation of most rules of war in any society that I know of. Um, but Jessup felt very justified in doing so because I'd let them come in at least twice and they traded and turned right around and killed my men. I can't let that go on. Today, we might say the Seminole were world-class scroungers because, they, as you say, they were able to trade. They were able to either use it with ruses, with negotiations. They got shipwrecks, and they pulled things off the, off the bodies of soldiers uh, killed in battle. That leads to a larger thing of uh, they also suffered great privations. What type of privations decimated the Seminole during this war? Well, first of all, you have disease, and people seem to have Forget that. Now, uh, Christopher Monaco has done a great job uh, in a recent essay he published, I think it was last year or two years ago. Uh, it's a fantastic look, for the first time ever that I know of, uh, at what kind of medicines were going on and what kind of health problems there were. And the Seminoles suffered from a lot of those same things that the soldiers did. After all, they're human beings, so darn good ones, too. Um, they suffered from the disease. Uh, the probation, when they did, when the Army did go through and, and burn everything they could get, it, you know, it was, you know, slash and burn kind of concept. Uh, that deprived the Seminoles of some of those caches and some of the uh, fertility of some of the fields they had. And don't forget, Florida does not have a lot of fertile land when it comes to what we normally think of as cash crops down, down the line. Uh, Seminoles, of course, that's why they grew the beans, why they grew the squash and pumpkin. They'll grow down here anywhere if you know what to do with them. 
and basically it's putting seed in, you hope, somewhat fertile, fertile ground. And they knew how to, of course, uh, use fertilizer. They knew how to, uh, I, I go back to the days of Benjamin Hawkins when he went through the Lower Creek tribe, and he's talking about, you know, these people, the, the headman of the, uh, of the local town is living in two, two or three story uh, building with, uh, with cedar sheet, uh, cedar shake shingles, um, you know, clappered siding. Uh, some of them even had glass windows for crying out loud. Uh, you know, a lot of the frontiersmen on Georgia didn't have that, I might add. <laughs> so you had that uh, kind of thing going for it. Um, plus, with the interdiction of trade uh, with the Bahamas and with, with Cuba, and even the Spanish fishermen to a point, uh, you deprive them, you deprive the Seminoles of a lot of the trade goods and the ability to trade what they did have. Uh, Therefore, you're not getting the inflow of foodstuffs, fish, um, or uh, weapons and, and uh, lead, etc. Uh, it's going to lead to some privation because you can't go hunting. And of course, the other thing too is you now have to revert back in many ways, uh, as by the way, uh, uh, Hillis Hadjo had uh, encouraged them to go back to the uh, old-fashioned way of hunting primarily with bow and arrow, whereas you go shooting, you're going to give away your location. So, And many Seminoles took that to heart. Uh, there's not a lot. It's kind of interesting that there's not a lot of mention of it, but every so often you will see that somebody was killed with an arrow, and you kind of scratch your head saying, they were still using bows and arrows? Hell yeah. <laughs> to use what you can get. And the Seminoles were very adaptable at doing that. It's just the creativity of the farmers or the agricultural people in the Seminole and Miccosukee tribe. Stop and think of that. I want everyone to think about it. Uh, you're coming from south, the wiregrass country of southwest Georgia and southeastern Alabama in that area going out over Tallapoosa, etc. Uh, totally different culture and different climate and different soil types uh, in that those areas that you find uh, when they were forced down further in Florida by the tree Moultrie Creek in 23, uh, coming down, 1823, you know, uh, coming down and forced into the area around the Ocala Center, if you will, in the Ocala National Forest, which is anything but an agricultural power paradise, uh, even today. <laughs> it's, it's scrub pine, sand, uh, some, some loamy soils in the area of the water bodies, uh, so it takes a totally different way to survive. Uh, one of my favorite stories is Surveyor Leroy May, a colonel in the Tennessee militia under Jackson, uh, came down to survey in that area near Silver Springs. And he came across the, uh, an old Indian friend of his that he had met in northern Florida, Madison County, where they were from. Uh, and uh, he was stopped from surveying. And he asked, why are you trying to stop me? And uh, we looked at him, and he says, well, quite seriously, those mules look pretty good to us. We haven't had any meat here in a long time. And he, the uh, headman of the group, John Hicks, took him around and showed him the uh, like 20 or 25 lodges. Uh, and they looked in, and there was just one hind quarter of a deer, the only meat available for the entire settlement. No wonder those mules look pretty good. <laughs> give you an idea that it was not an area of agricultural prosperity at any time. Still, isn't that great of an agricultural area as we all know? There are pockets, although obviously, but other places, no, it's not. That is one of the reasons why uh, you had uh, William Pope Duval, uh, James Gadsden, 
uh, and others basically told, and of course, Get, Get Humphreys, the Indian agent, told uh, the government that that was not good property. That's not good land. These people can't live on that. And you're just going to create more problems, which indeed it did. Uh, but as a result, uh, they did expand the boundaries a little bit further north to get into some of the more fertile areas over uh, in Hernando, today's Hernando and Pasco counties, uh, over near Chukachati, for example, uh, which uh, was a, a prominent uh, Indian settlement area for a while. And then, of course, when you stop and think, the final move they go is into the Everglades, which is a totally different ecosystem, uh, and you're basically farming individual islands uh, in the Everglades themselves, uh, islands being the higher ground, etc. And they're growing, when you take a look at what the army destroyed on the various raids, stop and think about it. I mean, they're talking about acres of pumpkins and other types of squash and beans, uh, even corn in certain areas. Uh, that is an adaptability that I don't see in any other tribe in American history. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I call them extraordinarily creative. It also you know, basically is their basis of supply. And therefore, as, as you and I have talked about before uh, in, in private conversation, the logistics, the, the Seminoles knew how to store and get food into certain areas. Terrain also played a part. Terrain is the biggest enemy of the United States Army, especially. Uh, they had no idea what kind of uh, materials to use. Uh, when they, for example, finally went up to Sheeting Creek in 1842, uh, they had to import the canoes, the Army did. They were uh, roughly 30 feet long and about 4 feet wide and carried 10 to 12 men and accoutrements and drew 9 inches of water. How's that for a statistic that nobody remembers? Um, so, but you had to know this and you had to have you know, learned it from experience that this was the kind of thing that the Seminoles had already been using traditionally anyway. They were using very light draft uh, vessels to go up and down the waterways, which of course, Florida had uh, and had at one time 7,700 water bodies in the state of Florida. Stop and think about it. <laughs> 7,700 water bodies, and all many of them are connected with streams and water flows during high during the uh, rainy season, uh, as surveyor Sam Reed observed. Uh, he's the founder of the Manatee Colony, by the way. Uh, Sam uh, said. You know, anything south of the Manatee River during the rainy season is underwater. The Seminoles knew where the high land was by then, and the Army did not. And, of course, uh, the fact that they have to deal with um, marsh of a different type, that was the first real time they'd ever looked into a swamp type of war. And, of course, uh, I think George Buecher's fine work on riverine warfare uh, in Florida gives you, the swamp sailors, uh, gives you a fantastic view of what we had, what the whites had to do to, to try to stop the Seminoles. They had no idea. Um, Jessup, of course, uh, kind of understood things better than most when it came to terrain uh, and use of the, uh, the terrain, um, and also what to order. His orders uh, for equipment and boats, etc., uh, are very, very telling uh, in his four-pronged attack uh, in 1837-38, which, by the way, led to the actual uh, first surveying and uh, accurate, relatively accurate drawings of Lake Okeechobee. Hmm. Remember the famous John Lee Williams map doesn't include Lake Okeechobee. Because John Lee had a strict rule that he, unless he could verify it through an eyewitness or people who lived in the area, he would not include it. Well, no one lived out there that he talked to. He talked to Bill Cooley and others who had traded with the, uh, the Seminoles for many years, and they couldn't give him a very good description of it, so he didn't include it. However, 
uh, as we found up at West Point, uh, the map uh, that was uh, produced up there by Anderson and others, it is extraordinarily accurate. I have a great copy, and I think I used it. And don't know if I used it in this book or one of the other books that I have, but uh, on the Seminole Wars, uh, we have that map, and it's a beauty. And when you take a look at uh, the later maps in the early 1900s, uh, in the early 20th century, uh, you'll see that the shape didn't change all that much and how accurate that map was. But then again, you have rainy season and wet, wet times, so therefore you've always got uh, that problem. And the American uh, government uh, and people living in Florida, or people who were just coming in Florida uh, at the time, had no idea of the rain cycle in Florida. Uh, nor did they have really a great idea. They obviously knew what a hurricane was, but not the ferocity that we get going across the state. Uh, and the fact that the Seminoles uh, could tell by the way the animals and the insects reacted, etc., they knew when the storm was coming, so they hightailed it to the, the high land. Uh, that was one of the f- biggest fears uh, that the Army learned uh, was uh, going to be a, a major problem if we'd ever had a hurricane during that time. And as you recall, uh, Cedar Key was almost wiped out by one during the time of the Army occupation uh, in the early 1840s. So, yeah, they were still learning about Florida and the Second Seminole War. The one thing you always want to point out, by the way, is, is uh, making a road at that time. Uh, Zachary Taylor's command, when he was in command here, produced what roughly, I think it was 1,200 miles of roads in Florida. That's the first time we've ever had any roads in the interior. Stop and think about it, folks. This is 18, we're talking 1838, 39, uh, yeah, and this is when, when most of that road building was done. Uh, it's an amazing accomplishment by the United States Army, I might add, and the, the engineers and the, and the pioneers who uh, worked with the various units. But that's the first time we ever had any interior connections for a lot of these places. I mean, yes, you could follow Indian trails, which many cases you know, uh, followed animal trails. They, they don't want to get their feet wet either. Uh, so as a result, uh, it just takes a long time to un- start comprehending the impact the Seminole Wars had on Florida. It was tremendous. Very few people recognized that contribution positive contribution in many ways. Uh, it wasn't for the Seminoles per se, but it sure was for the Army uh, and white settlers later. They followed those trails, and uh, that's, of course, a lot of the early settlements, uh, particularly under the Armed Occupation Act and later, uh, that's where they took place, was along those trails. In our talk about terrain, it got me thinking of a sports analogy, which is, you know, home field advantage, and the Seminole definitely had home field advantage. One of the things about home field advantage we may think about, say, in football is most teams don't want to play at Lambeau Field in late December. They don't want to play in Foxborough, Massachusetts in late December. And yet a Super Bowl was held at the Dolphin Stadium and it rained the entire time. The Seminole knew the climate and the Army knew it enough that, that the pestilence and so forth that came in with the much warmer weather, they stopped campaigning. And then the Seminoles got a breather so they could recover. And it wasn't until later in the war that the Army said, heck with this, we're going to have to go for 12 months a year uh, campaigning. And then uh, the conflict seemed to turn at that point. So uh, discuss the climate, the climate advantage that the Seminole had and how the Army eventually adapted to that. Well, exactly. I mean, I think you hit the nail right on the head here. The Seminoles did have the home field advantage, understood what the field was like. Uh, they understood the cycle of water. People don't know that the, it was the medical corps that was required to keep the temperature, the rain, amount of rain, uh, wind directions, etc., which they did with some degree of accuracy, I might add. That is the first real uh, 
record or recording of Florida weather patterns was by the Army Medical Corps during the Second Seminole War. It was required. And that's why we have, and we've got records going back at Fort Brooke in Tampa, uh, going back to the 18, uh, I think it goes back to 1832, the first of, the, of these records. They, they published them, I've got a copy of them somewhere, they published these things uh, quite a few years ago, and you'd be surprised how patterns are now, start, you know, they start seeing these patterns. Uh, and the Army started adapting, well, obviously during the wet season, where, hey, we can't go anywhere because it's so wet and everything we any kind of vehicle we have bogs down, and horses are going to get you know, get their mouths uh, stuffed with mosquitoes, and uh, all sorts of miasmas come out of the slum that to kill us, like yellow fever and dengue fever, etc. So it's a, it's a it's a serious matter, and once they start understanding that, and that's when they can start uh, ordering stuff. By the way, the, the surveyors did the same thing. All surveys in Florida. Uh, the early surveys up uh, to and after the Civil War were done during the dry season because you can't get anywhere. <laughs> you can't. You can't. You're not going to hire. You're not going to get any crews to sign up to go work in the middle of the swamp in the, in the rainy season. They all do better. And that's another little thing that I learned from from the uh, being the historian for the surveyors uh, in Florida for 28 years. Uh, got to understand a lot of what those guys had to go through, which was similar uh, to what the military had to put up with. And it ain't fun to want to read some of this stuff, uh, what they had to go through and what the military obviously went through, too. And again, I, I bring the point out that, like I said, 35 to 40 percent of our soldiers uh, were foreign-born, had no experience or familiarity with anything in the New World. And here they are being tossed uh, in, uh, into this war uh, against a very, I would call them very sophisticated guerrilla uh, force that knew exactly how to fight this war. Uh, and if you just stop and think about, say you're a young German immigrant, you don't speak English, or you're a Polish immigrant, as we found on the Witlikuchi River, who were put under a German sergeant who didn't speak Polish and gave his orders in German and by hand directions. And then they tried to cross the Witlikuchi and half, half, the command, half of that patrol drowns because they don't understand they're not... They're not supposed to do what the sergeant was trying to tell them not to do. Yeah, are you getting a, a, an indication of just how disorganized they And, of course, the officers are all, uh, by this point in time, uh, 37, 38, you're getting so many West Pointers. They're giving their uh, instructions in English. They don't know any other language besides French. And don't forget, French was the main language for reading military uh, text at West Point in the 1830s. You know that, and a lot of other people still is in certain cases up there. Um it doesn't hurt to have you know, a little bit of background of Jean Monnet, and he wrote in French and didn't uh, translate until much later because all educated people had that. Well, here is this highly educated West Pointer giving directions to a sergeant who may or may not understand English well, uh, and he turns around and he's from Germany and he's talking to his Polish soldiers. You're not going to communicate very well. And as you know, uh, every officer, uh, even this, uh, especially now uh, at West Point, uh, you had better know how to communicate quickly, concisely, and precisely uh, exactly what it is you want done. How miserable, Joe, how miserable was it to be a soldier, a private in the U.S. Army in Florida in the 1830s? You didn't want to be one. Uh, first of all, and, and the most obvious thing, the brutality uh, 
that officers practiced at that time. Uh, there were some who were essentially sadist, if you will, um, Hunt being one of them. Uh, there, you recall the story about uh, him. He young gentleman was uh, had the fever. He was a private. Uh, he had fever, and he was sent out to Picolata, which had a hospital at the time. Medical care being what it was, that's not being much, okay? Uh, the young man had a fever of well over 100. Uh, he was ordered to go back to St. Augustine. The doctor had said, no, you don't want to take this man. He's sick. And that wasn't, that wasn't, the order was he was going to do this. And the kid starts stumbling and come, comes up to him and starts beating the living down. I said, with a cane. He said, you will do this. He wanted to actually beating the young man to death. And even other officers were willing to testify against him. But he was put into a military court of his peers other officers. They exonerated him, stating basically that the young man had disobeyed a direct order. Yeah, a hundred plus fever, you're sick, and you've been sick in, in the hospital in Picolata, and you're going to walk in the, in the heat uh, from there to St. Augustine? Yeah, it was a brutal thing. Not only that, but your supplies that you would get. I mean, the, the shortchanging and the uh, dilution uh, there was one investigation that's in the quartermaster uh, general's records uh, that talks about how much sand was allotted in the sugar allotment. You could have one-third of your poundage that you paid for in sand if you were dealing with the sugar. You diluted the sand, you diluted the sugar with the sand. And that's become, that's, they're supposed to drink this? <laughs> of course, the coffee was you know, everything from chicory all the way up to maybe even real coffee at times. God forbid. I mean, there was there are incidences where people were actually grinding up uh, burnt cor uh, corn cobs and using that as coffee because it tasted better than what they were getting from the army. I mean, this I mean, didn't taste, you can go on and on and on how much spoiled beef, etc. I mean, I don't know if they ever got anything that was wasn't didn't have half spoilage in it. Uh, it was you know the the, um, the situation of supply of supplies at that time. Uh, you know, we had a commissary general. We had a uh, who may or may not have uh, had men on top of the game at that particular time. Most of the time, were not. Uh, the corruption that was involved in all of that. I mean, uh, sutlers were paid off, even though the sutlers were not the main provider of food, we might add. Sutlers are a separate store to provide things that the men uh, may want or think they need uh, that the Army does not normally ration to them. Uh, water supplies, oh my God. Um, the rancid water, uh, it was, you know, they didn't, they didn't for some reason or other, uh, even though I'm sure they knew of it at the time, uh, boiling water was not required. It should have been, but they didn't. Um, uh, sanitation was uh, bad, but the surprising number to me, and, and I, I put this out there for people to understand, uh, the sanitation, yeah, they knew how to dig a latrine. They knew they don't put it on top of their drinking water, etc. Third Seminole War, and even and going back to the Second Seminole War, they knew enough that you, A, don't build a camp on the same place that you built it previously because you still had, well, you just covered it with loose dirt, so you still got flies hanging around and all sorts of things five, six months later. I mean, you know, the stuff doesn't decay overnight, folks. Amazing what they did understand, and uh, the typhoid rate in the Seminole Wars, either the first, or the second, or the third, was actually less than the Spanish-American War, and it's an amazing statistic. However, 
then you have malaria, then you have other diseases that were just swiping, them, you know, going through and wiping them out. Mumps. People don't realize measles was a was a deadly disease back then. Uh, you know, and every so often measles would uh, go through and it would kill a number of soldiers. Uh, you don't think of that. It's a childhood disease. I got news for you. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's yeah. You know, it's one of those situations that. Uh, and I think Chris Monaco's work uh, is, uh, is a pioneering effort in uh, getting that kind of thing out to the forefront right now. Joe, thanks for talking to us. Not a problem. Joe, you outlined a lot of stuff. It, it, it sounds like it's a pretty depressing, miserable uh, place to have a war for all parties involved. We're going to come back, though, in our second episode. We're going to talk about a larger picture. We're going to talk about the bigger picture, which is underlying causes for the war, where uh, some of the action took place, and then what were the strategies operations and tactics that either side engaged in, and whether it was a war of extinction, a war of annihilation, a war of exhaustion, a war of attrition, or some combination of all of those in our second episode. So thanks for being with us today. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.